Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Neglected Podcast. My name is Nick Schultz. You can hit me up at Schultzy Time. We are at For the Neglected. If you want to check us out on social media, I'm here with my producer Quinn. What's going on, Quinn? In the new awesome studio here at City Church. Thank you, my man. And today I've got a special guest, and his name is Lyle Wood. What's up, Lyle? How you doing, What's man? What's happening, Schultz? How are you? I'm doing good. So yeah, you and I got connected, I guess, six years ago when I came down here to Savannah when my family moved down here. And we'll make this very short because we have a lot to talk about, but we both worked at the same church. Mm -hmm. So most people here and now be like, oh, you guys must've been really good friends and small staff and not really. We worked at a large church and you were at a totally different county than I was. And so we would have just kind of small interactions when everybody would get together. And it's not like we were good friends or anything, but we were cool with everything. And I remember actually the first time I came to, to, do something at the church. It was like at a retreat or something. And I was just sitting around watching everybody do stuff. And we were in a gym and you're like, hey, newbie. You didn't call me newbie, but I was new. <laughs> and I was just sitting there by myself. And you're like, get over here. We're playing uh, wiffle ball or kickball or something. And I was like, all right. This guy likes to have a lot of fun, and which is probably a true thing about you. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But we've always been cool and stuff. And you know, I guess we've gotten a little bit closer now that we both don't work for the same church and are doing something, right? something else. And yeah. you just have a really powerful story and have been through stuff that I don't even know the full extent of, but I knew that you would be somebody that I wanted to talk to if you were willing and share those things. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of people that could benefit from hearing your story and how it's continuing and you're probably still processing everything that you're going through, but um, you're, you're a good guy. A lot of people love you and I appreciate it about you. And I'm looking forward to finding out myself about some of the things that uh, you've went through when you're younger, but also some of the stuff that has gone on as an adult too. So thank you for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, let's let's kind of start at the beginning, just a little bit of a glimpse of you growing up, little Lyle, and uh, childhood and where you came from, the type of city or neighborhood you were in, your family dynamic, and kind of paint that picture for us a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born in Selma, Alabama, uh, little Selma, Alabama, and I lived there until I was two years old. And um, my mom and I and my brother moved to Montgomery after my dad committed suicide. So not a fun start. Not a fun start. So you were two at the time? I was two. It was actually the day before my second birthday. Dang, man. Yeah. 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 So yeah, got to start with that kind of trauma and just kind of work my way up from there, I guess. Um, yeah. And, and, and just to jump yeah, in yeah, right yeah, away. Yeah. Um, did, did you ever find out why um, that happened? Yeah. You know, kind of piecing some things together. I, I kind of saw a, a history of depression in my father, from what I understand. Um, some alcohol, some addiction issues uh, coupled with depression, I think just really did him in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, apparently a fairly outgoing guy, uh, played drums in a jazz band could walk in anywhere in Selma and people knew him, loved him, kind of gravitated towards him. And so he had a big personality, but I think he always battled these demons that he was constantly just having to self-medicate really mm-hmm. to deal with. Uh, so he ran for city council apparently and lost by a couple of votes and was accused of embezzlement at the uh, store he was working at. Wow. So yeah, I think it just all kind of came crashing down on him. Man, so yeah. so you're two, 
and it's really hard to remember anything at right, the yeah. age of two, but do you even remember like your mom uh, yeah. having to tell you or anything about I it? I really don't. Now my brother's 11 years older than me, so he oh, was 13. Wow. So yeah, mm. he dealt with all of that, just the trauma of having to go through that and mm. see that, be there in the house and those kind of things. Uh, so they had to work through a lot of that stuff, my mom and my older brother. Uh, I really didn't, I was a baby. And so I just kind of went along with the program and just kind of got carried along into the insanity, I guess. Yeah. So you're growing up without a father. Right. And, and what was your first memory of just like realizing that like, man, it would be cool to have a dad or I want a dad mm -hmm. or I'm, our, our family's maybe a little hurt because we don't have a dad. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's, it, that's a good question. Um, I don't think I had the chance to really process through that. My mom got remarried when I was five. Okay. Um, but the downside was he was really abusive to both of us. Mm. And so we lived in that for about seven years. And so I don't know that I ever really had that idea of, man, I would really love a father around. It was kind of the- Not after that. Yeah, no, kind of the, the father I have around. I wish he was kind of consistent because mm -hmm. he wasn't. I mean, I kind of lived with, uh, I had a counselor tell me one time, it's kind of like having a one of those you know big nautical ropes with a knot in it. And sometimes it's loose, it's a loose knot. Sometimes it's really tight. And that just kind of, the knot never goes away. Hmm. It's just a matter of, all right, like, what is it gonna be? How tight is it gonna be today? And that's kind of the life we lived for about seven years. You never knew who's gonna walk through the door. You never really knew kind of what you were gonna experience. How long was uh, yeah. was he in the picture for, or still is in the picture? Yeah, or? no, so seven years of that until um, I was 12. And my mom finally kind of got the courage to leave him and we ran away to North Georgia. And so I really became a, a, a kid with a single mom. My brother was old enough to kind of do his own thing. So middle school and high school, I grew up with a mom who was working two jobs and trying to take care of me and trying to take care of the house and pay bills and trying to have a life, I guess. So you did know? you have any other, I'm really interested because well, you, good. Know, yeah, you, know, you know my job, like yeah, I, I yeah. mentor young men yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a living. And so imagining what you're going through, going through puberty mm -hmm. and you just move right. to a different location yeah. where you, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you don't have a lot of friends yet. And yep. you know, you don't have a father yeah. or maybe even in any male role model or somebody you're looking up to, whether you even trust them or not. Like right. what, what's it like for you as a now teenage boy going through puberty, just moved. Yeah. Know your first father died, know nothing about him. Then all you know about fatherhood is this other guy that comes in and yeah. abuses you and your mom. And yeah. Yeah. You know, what, what is that? How are you processing? There were a lot of sore knuckles, right? A lot of holes punching walls, concrete, a lot of anger. It was just a lot of just rage and anger and all out of fear. Mm -hmm. I remember being really scared when I was in middle school, um, really scared to the point of like sleeping on the couch in the living room all night with TV on. And I'm like 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's normal, but I mean, again, like what is what's normal, right? Yeah. Especially in our culture now, I have no idea. I don't want that for my boys. I've got two little guys and you know, I never want them to be so fearful. They have to sleep on the couch. I know that. Um, so I know that part, I guess, is, is kind of normalized for me. But yeah, um, a lot of anger, a lot of rage. The hormones are kicking. Um, thankfully, I had a friend who invited me to church um, in seventh grade. And he invited me to church. And I started going because of the community and because of that fear. you know. And I think I actually accepted Christ because of fear. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
uh, I guess it worked out well. Um, but at that point, it was like, man, I, I know I need something. I know, you know, I need peace. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, for some people, you know, when they hear people talk about God, it's like, you know, God's a father. He's, mm-hmm. he's a loving father. He's never going to leave you, all this right. stuff. And, and, you know, for some people, it's like, screw that. I don't want any part of it because of the experiences I've had right. with, with my my actual father and then my stepfather. And I don't mm-hmm. want any part of that or I, you know, it's, it hurts too much. But some people that like that's really appealing. Like, man, yeah, I want that because I have never seen it. Yeah. And yeah. I want, I guess, unconditional love and from from a father figure who's not going to leave me. And I, right. Know, yeah. Was that kind of it for you a little bit? No, or? I think that's the, yeah, it's the, you know, having the abandonment issues just kind of across the board. Yeah. I was always trying to latch onto something, but it was really physical. Right. So I was in church, but I was there for the community, like for the youth group, kind of being around other people. Um, so the whole father thing, man, I've still, I talk about this now with my kids. I don't, um, I don't have a familiar name for my dad, which means I don't have like a familiar name for God, right? When Jesus says Abba, Father, Daddy, that that type thing, like I don't have that for God. Um, I never had that because I just, I just never really called a man dad or daddy or anything like that. So that is still kind of awkward for me. Mm-hmm. And the closest approximation I have now is I have two boys that are uh, six and almost four. And so they call me Dada, right, still. Yeah. And uh, it's just a normal, common name. And so I think I have to draw a conclusion from the way they call me that is the way that I would call God my father if I had that modeled for me. Mm-hmm. Because I'm, the, I'm still consistent. And so I tried to do this thing with my son the other day. Um, trying to have one of those teaching moments, one of those God moments, you know, and didn't really set it up, but it, it, it came this way. So he's in and he's about to go to bed. I said, Hey bud, come here. Um, so I'm sitting on the couch. I put him in my lap and he's kind of curled up in my lap a little bit. And I'm like, you know, this is the way God holds me when I want to come to him. And you know, when I'm worried or scared or, or hurting, I said, bud, what do you think about that? He said, my back hurts. I was like, <laughs> awesome go to bed get it later on (laughs) go to bed dude yeah and so you know even like through that i think it's so natural for him he 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 just he doesn't put those two things together like i do and so i think the absence of a father absence of somebody there that has been consistent and loving and kind and gracious he takes for granted but for me i'm like dude that's that's huge that's huge so So, i had my mom right? right But when you look back at your like just childhood and you say the word childhood, yeah. is it is there any positivity to it? Like any good memories? Or is it like, man, I just skip ahead till we got to North Georgia and moved on and I don't even want to deal with it? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. I, th- I mean, there's some, right? So I still like to hunt. I still like to fish. I learned those things when I was in Alabama with uh, my mom's ex-husband. Uh, he had a good work ethic. So like, uh, I mean, we worked hard yeah. and he was very demanding, but I know now I'm very work oriented and I can work hard. Uh, so I know I picked up some things. So yeah, I think some fishing stuff, some hunting stuff, riding four wheelers, those kind of things mm-hmm. like, dude, that was cool. You know, yeah. 40 acres out in Alabama was really, that was a lot of fun. Well, I like that phrase you said, picked up. Were there things you picked up that weren't good that whether you knew it at the time or even like discovering as an adult, like, man, I, 
I had I picked that stuff up. It might not even been a physical thing. It might have been like a mental thing. Oh, how yeah. You, yeah. How yeah. you think yeah. about yourself or other people. Yeah. That's like, man, I can't believe that's from all the way back yeah. then because of that, what happened to me. So it's been a lot of counseling through that, marriage counseling through that, because I didn't know how to be a, 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 a husband. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I have been married um, 17 years this August. So nicely done. Yeah. Sweet. Going for 20. And then keep she, going. She keeps me around. It'll be good. <laughs> Uh, but I, I didn't know how to be a husband. I didn't have great relationships in the past. I didn't have this great mentor in my life saying, Hey man, this is how you treat women. This is how you deal with conflict. This is how you deal with your anger. So 13, 14, 15, you know, I'm kind of, I've got all this rage and hormone stuff and I'm punching walls and I'm just throwing things. And I mean, just all that stuff is coming out. I'm hulking up essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as I mature, that stuff falls away, but the feelings inside don't right. like there's still just this drive and this anger and this, oh. and when there's conflict with my wife and I, especially early on the first man year, 18 months, we're trying to figure out how to do that. Well, mm-hmm. and we moved about six hours away, uh, went to seminary. So I'm a new Christian at that point. I'm trying to get to this place where I'm getting some training on what I think God wants me to do in the future and all those things. Uh, but I'm still a relatively, new Christian, you know, at that point, committed Christian, um, new husband. We'd been married a week uh, when we decided to move six hours away from home, her first time away from home. Oof, that's yeah. some interesting timing there. Yeah. And uh, I love, I mean, I left my house as soon as I could yeah. um, to move down to Savannah to go to school. Uh, but Rachel, you know, my wife, she loved being at home, still loves being at home. There's mm-hmm. a reason we're in Savannah. She loves her family very much. Yeah. And I do too. And I'm thankful for them. But that first couple of years being so far away, I had no idea what to do. Cause I, I mean, I didn't have a mo- I didn't have that role model. Yeah. I had some good guys around me here in Savannah before we left, mm-hmm. you know, some guys that would sit around the table and say, Hey man, don't be stupid. Hey, you know, if your wife, comes to you and says something like that this is how you need to listen and you know but it's not like real life ongoing constant communication i mean this is dude i didn't even have a cell phone at that point so i'm not even connected to guys uh, that i can just call up and say hey here's the situation so it was a little isolating Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a little confusing i think because i thought marriage might be better Mm -hmm. um the honeymoon stage, I mean, really wasn't a stage. We kind of hit that later on, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those things, I think really, as I look back on not having a dad, not having a traditional family coming from, you know, parents that kind of stick together, or at least involved if they're not sticking together. Yeah, I think that was the major fallout. Hmm. And, you know, just fast forwarding to, if that's all right, to like yeah, becoming cool. a pastor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, right. as a, I guess, former pastor, I guess I still am. I, I don't know if they took the paper away from me. That's I, a good question. You should ask. Like, <clears> I should ask somebody, yeah. but I, you know, I think I'm technically still considered that. But as a pastor, like your job is to help other people, yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. as a man, you're helping other men. And, you know, I'm just wondering how difficult that is to get to do that line of work and to come from all of those things that you're struggling with from way back when to... Mm-hmm you know, even marriage, like you were just sharing right now. And your job is now to you know, point people to God, but also counsel them and shepherd them and right. he- help them. Yeah. And, and that's not sure. a knock because nobody's perfect. Right. Like everybody's broken. They're all trying to figure it out, but there's still people look at you at a certain mm-hmm. 
-hmm. elevated stature of you have it figured out and so tell me how to do it yeah Yeah. tell me how to do it and can you recall when you realized man man, maybe i don't really know how to do it on there's all these people that i'm (laughs) trying to to help yeah that started kind of day one and still what's still going whatever today is today right (laughs) Yeah. yeah No, I mean, it's kind of on the job training, honestly. It's a uh, trial by fire, you know? So I think the man I am now, uh, my late 30s going into my 40s, is much different than I was as a young pastor at 25, 26, 27. So, I mean, to you guys that I was pastoring back in my mid 20s, sorry, I love you. Um, thanks for still being friends with me. But yeah, I think it's different. Um, and I can, but I think that's part of growth, right? And I think that's part of, of what the church should be. We should be walking together, growing together all the time. And so, yes, we do have this tendency to put pastors on a pedestal thinking, man, he has some special connection to God and he's holier than I am and he must have it figured out. So I'm going to go to him and put him on a pedestal. Um, I think that's wrong for us to do. I think what we have to do for pastors is look at them and say, hey, you've committed yourself to working this thing out. And I'm grateful for that. Tell me what you're learning as you grope in the dark for truth and consistency so that I can start walking into the darkness, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's, it's kind of transformed into that, but it took a while. I mean, that's taken me, I've been probably in the darkest place in my ministry in the last two or three years. Uh, so, Man, I started volunteering in the church in 2001, mm-hmm. went to seminary, uh, came back to Savannah to work full time at a church here in 2006 and served there for 11 years full time. So I was there for a while and then um, decided to make a shift um, and move to a different area, to a different type of church, different philosophy of ministry. And I was completely burned out and I had no idea until I get to this other church and they look at me and say, hey, man something's not right. Like, like something's, something's wrong. And so as they're, they're very exposing culture, almost like they have x-ray vision It's crazy. And I think what they saw was a bunch of uh, hollowness in who I was. And I had compensated a lot um, through performance and through, you know, just drawing people around me to get to that place where I could kind of, um, insulate myself and have the appearance of being a, you know, full-fledged mature pastor. Uh, and when you're working in a big system, you can do that, I think. Um, so you're kind of talking about like doing a lot, helping a lot of other people, but you, you yourself, yes. you're letting your own yeah. health kind of. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So ministry that I was in was, was, I mean, just flourishing. It was great, but, but my spiritual life was just dwindling down to nothing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, as I, these last couple of years, just kind of working through the dark night of the soul, as um, St. John of the Cross calls it, just silence from God, uh, having to, to work through some of those things. I realized I was doing a whole lot of stuff, but I was never going to God and just being with God and having that kind of give me the energy. Right. So we talk about that all the time with Sabbath. This idea of Sabbath should be, you know, giving yourself time and space to fill your tank up so that it pushes you through the week. And not only was I not doing that at all, I was taking my hose and putting it in other people's tanks, right? To take their energy too. So I was completely depleted. 
And I'll take somebody else's energy and say, hey, man, you push, right? And you push, push, push on the team and we'll do something else amazing. And then that would dry up too. And then just kind of siphling off energy mm. until I guess I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And on the outside looking in, because you said that was like the last two or three years. Yeah, last two or three years. Yeah. And yeah. But you also had a major kind of life event yeah. happen as well, yeah. at least from the outside looking in because right. you know we weren't like you and I were talking about this stuff but I I knew you were going where you were, where yeah. you ended up but yeah. then you also had this just major difficult thing happen yeah with which is with, with a family member crazy crazy and happen at the same time and yeah. you know as much as you're willing to talk about that too like it's just such a big part of your story and where yeah. you're at right now it's hard yeah. not to but that's right if you can just kind of let people know kind of what happened sure um so I'm in this place where, you know, ministry seems to be going really well. And I feel like, all right, I think, you know, God might be calling me into something else, something different. Um, not better, not worse, just different. Um, and he was, he was calling me into this place of being away from doing and into being. And so we get to this place where we finished up 10 years of ministry and um, we start evaluating, all right, what does the next five year run look like? Um, you know, we were renting, so we were gonna buy a house at that point, start, you know, kind of saving up for a down payment and just said, all right, you know, God, what do you have for us? What does this look like? And um, started putting out some resumes, just three or four, um, nothing huge. And so we start the process and we find this church and we start the conversation and it took almost a year, right? From, from January to, November having this conversation and I think we finally got to the point where everyone was convinced yeah this is a good move this is kind of what God has for us this is what this looks like this is we'll start prepping towards that and we go on Thanksgiving vacation and um, it's me and my wife and my four-year-old son and my nine, 10 month old youngest son. Mm -hmm. And we go to the mountains uh, with my mom. So she's doing the timeshare thing. Um, so she's got a timeshare uh, in Sugar Mountain in North Carolina. And we got to spend a week with her on vacation. Now we're trying to, so you asked the question like, all right, so the fallout of being like in such a traumatic childhood, mm -hmm. that had implications for my relationship with my mom. Yeah. So my brother had this um, kind of emotional connection to my mom because she carried him through a lot of trauma and yeah. had a lot of background that I didn't have, that history of just, you know, with my dad and, and all of that before everything happened and then afterwards. Uh, so they had a connection that I think I got robbed of to some degree because when I was five, six, seven into, you know, 18, I really became the solid, consistent foundation for my mom, kind of the rock of the family. So I kind of became her caretaker almost, wanted the best things for her, wanted to take care of her, wanted to love her and provide for her and just make sure she was safe. Mm -hmm. And as I got older, I wanted to do that more and more. As you get resources, as you get a family, you know, you get some consistency, I wanted to just take care of her. Mm -hmm. And she remarried a third time. And when he died, I said, hey, come to Savannah, you know, let us take care of you. Uh, but that's what it was. It became kind of this caretaking relationship where I'm checking in a couple times a week, just calling. And that didn't 
that relationship just couldn't last. Um, so she moved to Gatlinburg actually with my brother. Uh, and she was gone for man a couple of years and we were trying to mend that relationship because it was just a nasty kind of separation. Cause I've got all this stuff, you know, all this baggage from the past and resentment and how could you and blah, blah, blah. And she's wanting relationship and she's wanting all the good, healthy things that mm -hmm. I can't, if I can't do it, it, it wasn't worth the time. Right. So I want to, same thing with relationship with God, doing, 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 get her in a good house, get her in a good neighborhood, get her taken care of at church, get her in a small group, get her a job, get, 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 yeah. but not sit and be with her. Mm -hmm. And so some of the fallout um, came when she moved because I just felt this deep hurt. And my wife is, she's an incredible woman, a true empath. And she just looks and says, Hey, this is a relationship you need to mend. You need to figure out how to do that because it's good for our family and it's good for our boys. And so we got to figure out how to do that well. Yeah. And so that's where vacation would come in. So for a couple of years, we were trying to take vacation time to heal some of that relationship. And this was the time that it really started to click well. So we go to North Carolina and we're in this timeshare and we get the kind of attention with each other and with her that we could not have anticipated or prepared for. Uh, so my stump, my, my wife gets a virus, puts her in bed for the first two or three days of vacation. So it's just me and my mom and my two boys. Mm -hmm. And we have to just be together. And I'm so thankful for that because we could go and, and the car ride down the mountain to the pharmacy. She started talking about things that she hadn't talked about in a long time. She'd been guarded about finances and, you know, she just felt some shame, I think, from the, the, our past and all that. Um, but for some reason, she just opened up about some of that stuff, like life insurance, like weird things that mm -hmm. we just never talked about. Um, because my wife was sick, um, she had to be the one to take care of, you know, the toddler mm -hmm. and the infant at that point. And she got uninterrupted time with my oldest son and with my youngest son. And then I got sick, of course, which passes through yep. timeshare, right? So then my wife gets this time with my mom and this healing starts and it feels good. You know, it's not healed. It's not complete. It's not over. It's not all, you know, rainbows and unicorns, but I mean, it's, it's good. It's better. Yeah. And so it starts to snow up there and we say goodbye and she's going to come back down to Savannah. Um, we left Saturday. She's going to come back down on Tuesday because my wife's birthday is the first week of December. We're going to Disney world. It's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. So Monday, she calls my wife at about six o'clock and says, hey, I'm kind of scared. And Rachel's like, wow, what's going on? She's like, well, I smell smoke. And I'm hearing some stuff on, on the TV that there's a fire close. And she said, OK, well, you know, call Lyle's brother and, and talk to him and then let him know. She said, I don't want to be a baby. I don't want to bother him. He's working, you know. So she's living on this mountain in Gatlinburg and he's working about a 30 minute drive down the mountain. And so my wife says, okay, you know, just, just go and keep packing for Disney. Take your mind off of it, do laundry, just keep your mind busy. And then, you know, um, my brother will be home soon and mm -hmm. he'll, he'll be there and, and it'll be fine. So she calls back out, she calls my wife again uh, about 7.30, 7.45, and just says, hey, you know, I'm really scared again. She says, call call James. And she does. Um, 
And the last thing that my brother heard was my mom say, James, the house is on fire. Hmm. And so um, November 2016, the Gatlinburg fires kind of uh, raged up this mountain where these rental cabins and things were. Yeah. My mom and my brother were, were renting a cabin at the top of it. And so this fire just started to build and build and build to the point where it actually created its own kind of weather system. Mm-hmm. Like it's got like like 80 mile per hour winds. It's, I mean, it's a ravaging fire. Mm-hmm. And apparently what had happened was when my mom called, the corner of the house was already on fire and she had a broken hip that she had been trying to rehab and she couldn't get out of the house. And so by that time, the fire was so large and so out of control that it, when it reached her, um, she's at the top of the mountains raging and it's just destructive. And she died in that house, in that cabin, just right there. And so we get this call from my brother who I hadn't talked to in years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just our relationship's not great either. Um, can you tell there's a lot of brokenness in, in the past here? It's, it's hard to hear, man. It really is. <laughs> it's know, tough. It is. It is. Um, and so out of the blue, I get this phone call from him, and he leaves a voicemail and says, hey, mama's in trouble. And I call him back, and he says, hey, I'm going up the mountain now. There's a fire. It's bad. I need you to come here. And so the next morning, my wife and I got in the car, and we drove to Gatlinburg. And we couldn't get up the mountain. We couldn't figure out, you know, if she's okay, if she got out. There were crazy reports of like people like hiding in swimming pools, like neighborhood sure. pools and yeah. that kind of stuff, right? So, I mean, so you have no idea. This is like a whole no. other day or two later. No, you're still so, not yeah. sure. So, this is the next like afternoon, evening. Okay. So, you know, Savannah to Gatlinburg's five, six hour trip. Um, we got there early afternoon and you can't get in. You mm-hmm. know, they've got everything blocked off and. You're not getting any reports and they've got these shelters that are set up and just all this, this is all the stuff you never like think about mm-hmm. until you experience it. Uh, and I think we get a taste of that in Savannah with the hurricane stuff, like the evacuations and getting people back in and staging back in and that kind of stuff. But I mean, they've got hundreds of people that have lost their homes that are in the rec center in Gatlinburg, just staying and you go in and you check with the Red Cross and say, hey, this is who I'm looking for. Do you have this name? And they've got some people that are unnamed, so it could be her. Um, and so we walk out of that and we see a news crew there. And I just go up to him and said, hey, can you help help me find my mom? And they kind of went everywhere from that point. Um, so we just we considered her a missing person for a couple of days did everything we could to try to find her, um, try to find ways up the mountain mm-hmm. that we just just couldn't do anything but wait. And I think Wednesday, uh, Wednesday afternoon or evening, we got word from the sheriff's department that they had found um, that hip replacement, you know, made of titanium. I mean, it's small, I mean, it's tiny. And so these guys were on their hands and knees digging through debris because they knew the call came from the house and they knew that she probably didn't get out. So they're digging through this debris to try to find anything. 
And that day they confirmed that she died right there in the fire. Well, I don't, one, I'm sorry, yeah. man. I'm really sorry to hear yeah, it. Thanks. And I'm sure it's nowhere even close to being easier talking about it mm. now. Like, what, what do you think? What's that moment like? What's rushing through your head either at that exact moment or just a few hours later? Like, try to take me through it. It's yeah, yeah. So in all my like, <laughs> so for me, I've got all this jacked up kind of faith oriented, pastor oriented type of uh, stuff in my background where I have to perform in that moment. Yeah. And so I watch my wife and my brother break down in tears like normal people would. And what I do is I look at the sheriff and say, hey, how can I pray for you? Because you just dug through debris to find my mom's, you know, hip replacement. Mm -hmm. I know you guys are going through a lot. How can I pray for you? Which as I look back now, I how jacked up is that? Right. Like I couldn't even grieve my own mom because I was so oriented towards doing something in that moment outside of my own feelings. I had detached so much out of protection or whatever um, so that I didn't have to feel all of that, that I just, yeah. I just turned it off. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's exactly what happened. We we're in the sheriff's office. I can still see and the sheriff's right there and my family's right here. And I turn away from my family and look at this guy and say, Hey, how can I pray for you? And I mean, I'm ashamed of that. You know, there's some of that that goes on. Some of it's, I just, I have to forgive myself and just realize, okay, I got a real jacked up past. So I get that and I've got to work through some of that and have, and that's where the darkness of the last couple of years comes in because this is a month before we're supposed to leave for a new ministry. Right. Right. So but yeah, there's so no playbook. doing all that, right? But on your on your behalf and defense, there's no playbook for that situation either. That moment yeah, when you get yeah. that kind of news and they say it, you can't prepare for it, right? And so yeah, and I get that, uh, and I appreciate that. No, I do. I appreciate this kind. I don't words. think of you any less for that kind of reaction Thanks. because I'm someone that pushes stuff aside. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's why it's part of the reason I was just wondering because I I do the same same type of things myself, but I've never experienced the kind of hurt and loss that you have nor would I know how to prepare myself for it. So it's just like, yeah. you can't, it's like it's such a process to deal with that. And like you said, here you are dealing with this and you're supposed to move and start this new stage right. of, of life, but you're in a dark place. You have the worst possible thing happen to you and you have to be a husband and a father through it all because they're gonna be going through a lot, especially with your young kids of like how to process all this. And you're still trying to go leave and yeah. start someplace fresh when right. you are now completely shot. Oh yeah, just limping, absolutely limping, yeah. And so you you will respond the way you train yourself to respond. Hmm. As much like the military, um, first responders, they all do this. It's why they train so intensely mm -hmm. uh, because the way you will train your body and your mind and your heart to turn off switches yeah. to deal with trauma. And I've got enough trauma in my past where I turn off switches pretty quickly. But what I always tell my guys that I'm, uh, that I'm partnering with, that I love, that I care about, that are coming back from war, it's like you have to turn those switches back on in a particular order or everything goes haywire, right? You short circuit stuff and, and things don't come back on the right way. So I turned all those things off to deal with the moment and deal with the next phase of life. But as I'm trying to turn those things back on, 
something short-circuited. And so I'm at this church with this great discipleship program, with this great community-oriented program that is really pushing people towards one anothering, right? As Stanley says, um, just knowing and being known, authentic, love, care, those kind of things. The place where I should have flourished as a relational guy who mm -hmm. can connect well, I absolutely floundered for 12 months. I could not get the relational stuff right. Couldn't say the right thing, couldn't do the right thing, couldn't be in the right spot. Um, one of the, my mentors there looked at me and said, man, like the amount of energy you're putting into trying, it's like you're, you're in mud and you're spinning your wheels. Mm. You're getting no traction. And that's a really hard thing to hear because mm -hmm. I had done so well for so long. I didn't know what else to do. And all I had, I had built everything kind of on this ministry platform and that had come become my identity. I had become the pastor. Yeah. Professional holy man. And now you can't do it. Now I can't do it. Yeah. And, and worse, you're even failing at it. That, that's the harder part, right? Yeah. It's like I'm doing everything I know how to do. So I'm launching new services and um, doing work days and creating new environments for children's ministry and like all this, this stuff that should be like, wow, that's awesome. We've been looking for somebody to take the lead on that. Nope. And so, so none of that is really celebrated at all, which is not the culture I come out of. And then you've got this other culture of, we really need you to be shepherding people well. So you need to listen to them and, and hear their heart on issues. I couldn't hear their heart. All I wanted to do was say, okay, well, you need to move on past that. Because mm -hmm. you're moving on. Because I'm moving on. Yeah. I, I got no time to sit. Mm -hmm. We got to do some stuff, right? So I spent a year with that and thankfully so grateful for strong mentors that looked at me and said, but you need a break. You need a break from ministry. You really do. You need to stop trying to lead at 90 miles per hour. Uh, we joke about it sometimes. Um, and some cultures we've been a part of and say, hey, man, you know, uh, been in ministry at this fast pace, like trying to work on your car as you drive 80 miles per hour down the interstate. And we joke about that as a thing to, to celebrate. Well, I was trying to do the same thing. And they say, that's impossible for you to do. You need to stop the car, take a break, fix what's going on. And then when you start up again, you will be healthy. So let us help you do that. So, yeah. I, and you worked your way back to savannah because it, so it, it didn't work out there and right, you yeah, came yeah, back yeah. to do that yeah so that was it so that was for them they try to keep me around so mm -hmm. they, they try to just take take care of us and and we just couldn't stay where yeah. we were so we came back to savannah and that is really where things got dark and scary and narrow cloudy i mean it was bad so i sunk into a depression during that time um they got really bad yeah the first eight or nine months got really bad because i didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. working a sales job because somebody that knew me said, Hey man, we love you. We'll, we'll take care of you. Mm -hmm. Live in an apartment, um, which I'd never, you know, hadn't lived in with my family, two kids and going stir crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, and all that anger and rage and all that stuff's coming back up because that's how I'm dealing. And that's how most men deal with depression. Well, I'm wondering anger. too, how you feel because you're coming back to a place where you were successful yeah, technically yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you also have a lot of people that love you and would want to care for you but yeah. how much are you allowing people mm -hmm. in to be able to do that as opposed to i need to shut that off i have no idea right. what to say i don't want i don't want people around because i'm so low i mean yeah super awkward yeah super awkward for the first eight or nine months for sure 
So tried to float back into some of the areas that we were in and people would say, hey man, what are you doing? Are you back working for the church? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not. What are you doing? Uh, I'm doing sales. Right. Oh, okay. Which for you, that's gonna make you feel like a failure because course, people yeah. have you up here. Yeah, like yeah, this. yeah, yeah. And I mean, and sales is great. I yeah. Mean, that ministry opportunities all over the place. And I've learned how to, you know, how to love that and care for that and be a part of that. Um, but it was not something I was used to. It's something I did before ministry, right? Before I, uh, I arrived in ministry. Uh, so yeah, I had to spend time trying to figure out what that looked like and, and couldn't take pride in taking care of my family. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah. It was just like how, what's the, what's the challenge? What's your, what's your family going through honestly as yeah, well? Like with, time, with yeah. your wife and like your, your boys, like yeah, you gotta. No, my wife's freaking out. My yeah. wife is freaking out. She's trying to figure out what's going on. She's never seen me like this. She's never seen me so low, uh, depression, I mean, creeped in. So it was you know, anger and rage and not want to get out of bed and like all that stuff, all the, all the things you traditional case of depression you hear about and now you're living it. Yeah. And then I've got the suicide in my past, right. With my dad. Mm -hmm. And so I start realizing why he did what he did mm. because he felt like I felt mm. he lost everything. He lost everything. Yeah. He went from being the life of the party and the guy that everybody knew and everybody talked to and very social um, to losing something he poured himself into and then be accused of something dishonorable at a place that he had worked really hard to get to. And yeah. Was that a turning point for you to realize that? Or was that a place that it actually took you a little bit lower before you came out of it? I had to get down there and my wife look at me and like call the police. Hmm. She was out of town one time. And um, I turned my phone on vibrate uh, to go to bed and um, she was genuinely concerned that I had taken my own life. And so she called the police department and I wake up to banging on my door trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and it's because she's scared. Yeah. <laughs> she's scared out of her mind and she didn't know what to do. Right. And I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do other than just be there and walk through the process. And she finally looked at me and said, Hey, you've got to get some help. You've, you've got to talk to somebody. You've got to walk through this. Um, and what did help look like for you? So for me, um, medication helped cause it got me over the hump. So with anxiety and depression kicking in, I got on some medication pretty quickly that helped, uh, start that process and then mentoring and counseling, you know, it was huge. It was huge for me to be around people I loved and cared about that I didn't have to perform mm. for. Right and didn't have to seek. So I had some guys that just saw me around Henderson um, in that area that said, hey, why don't you come, hey, let's grab coffee. Let's, let's, let's get together. And um, that turned into, hey man, let's get together once a week. Let's kind of talk through this. Let's see what's going on. Let's see, you know, tell me more uh, to, hey, why don't we work through this book? Uh, why don't we kind of meet together, read together, study together, uh, th those kind of things. And it turned into, hey, I need to see a counselor. I need to have some professional counseling that can mm -hmm. sit down and say, hey, this is what you're going through. This is what you're experiencing. And then like slowly, 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 the fog starts to lift. And it's not because I'm trying anything. It's not because I'm doing anything. It's just the fog is starting to go. And I'm starting to like feel healthy mm -hmm. uh, a little at a time. 
So it takes months and months and months. So I, I would say the first year we were back, it was a, a the beginning of the process. And the second year has been exponentially better. And is that this current year? That's that, this, right. Yeah. So that's yeah. So that's like 2019. Right. Okay. So so yeah, we got back um, 2018. So that first 2018 period was. Whew. Mm -hmm. 2019 comes and like okay, I'm getting some rhythm starting to feel good, starting to have conversations with my wife and she's starting to build some trust up again, right? She's uh, starting to see life again. She's starting to see some, you know, some color come back in my cheeks and some, you know, activity and energy and, you know, those kind of things. And, and we start to settle. So we settle in on a church and we start serving together. And uh, my boys are kind of oblivious to all of it, I think, honestly. Yeah, that's what um, I was going to ask. It's like, yeah, have, did they ever ask any questions or did you have to explain anything? I really or? didn't. Um, I'm thankful for that. My wife is a good protector. So I think she protected them from a lot of that stuff. Um, when we kind of came, you know, against each other and things got heated, uh, it was always away from the kids. Uh, we were, you know, protective over those things. And um, I don't know how much she did. During that time, just to say, hey, you know, dad is not feeling well. Let's leave him alone. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Haven't really asked a whole lot of that stuff. Um, but, yeah, I never really. I've had to look at him and say, hey, this is what I went through. I mean, I will at some point and I'm sure they'll go through it, too, at some point and we'll walk through it. And hopefully it won't be nearly as traumatic for them. Uh, and again, like learn from the experience and that baptism by fire. Like yeah. I know what to look for now. And I know how to be healthy now. And I know what it looks like to, to maintain health and get healthier every day. And so I also know what to look like, look for in my wife, right? To look at her and know that, hey, man, there's concern or there's there's fear or, hey, I broke some trust here. I need to work on that again. Um, and I'm perfectly willing to do that because mm -hmm. um, it's important. And I think any person that goes through that has to realize there's collateral damage that comes from kind of getting that far down. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's not to put blame on the person that's getting that far down. I think it's just the acknowledgement that, hey, when you get to that point, you will say and do things that are concerning and scary. And probably for men, especially who deal with it with anger, um, you will display some tendencies that are quite uh, unsettling. You know, yeah. especially to your spouses because they're there and they love you and they care about you and they want good things for you. So yeah. you just have to realize it and say, hey. I need to make amends for that. Grace abounds and, you know, maintain healthy habits, I think, through that. Now that you're in a healthier place yeah, right yeah, now, yeah. Um, that kind of makes me think back in the conversation about part of the reason you decided you wanted to follow God or believe in God was you said fear. You mentioned the word fear. Yeah. And, you know, as part of you, now that you're in a healthier place, is is part of it the fear of going back to what you know how dark a place you can go to where how dark your history with your family is where it's like mm -hmm. i know that i'm not so far from removed because this is a part of me and part of what i've gone through but there's a fear there that i don't want to go there or is it just like a hope in the future or how do you when you look at what you've what you've experienced what what's kind of the motions of where it's been and where you're moving forward hmm. i think fear creeps in right especially with big decisions um, yeah, fear just kind of creeps up and all of a sudden you're like, oh, what's that? So, uh, you know, for me, I've been thankful to do a lot of work. Um, in this time, I found myself in a place where I was doing some work where I could have headphones in and listen to 
audiobooks and podcasts and those kind of things and started working through some material on uh, being emotionally healthy mm-hmm. um, and paying attention to what your body is doing, your mind is doing, your heart is doing, what's going on kind of in your, you know, for me as a, as a follower of Jesus, what the Holy Spirit's saying to me through my body. Um, and so I've learned to identify a lot of that. And I think that's part of being healthy is I, identifying, okay, I'm not living in fear. I'm not running from fear. I'm not paranoid. Fear is an emotion that will come up in my life because it's just a natural part of being a human being. Mm-hmm. It does not have to rule anything. It does not have to, um, I don't have to be led by my emotions. I don't have to also be emotionless, right? So I think it's both ends of the spectrum. Um, I could be emotionless, turn off the switches and just be done in the past or i could just be flooded with emotions and just like only be led by my my emotions and i did that for a little while too i think finding the happy balance is recognizing the emotion that's popping up when you recognize it put some language to it and then determine what you're going to allow it to do right you give it permission you give that emotion permission to do whatever it wants to do in your mind and your heart your body and your soul uh, and then that limits it. Mm-hmm. So if it's joy, which we should be, you know, searching for and have like a deep seated joy, I mean, that, that's an emotion too. So if I'm too joyful, I might get to the place where, I mean, who knows? I've never been so joyful that I did anything crazy, <laughs> but man, you know, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Um, but I mean, just regulating that fear is one of those things. I could be so fearful that I can be par- uh, paralyzed by that. I can be, um, overly cautious. I can, I can wonder what boogeyman's lurking around the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the amazing thing is like as a follower of Christ, I have been brought through all of this trauma in the last almost 40 years. And somehow things have always not necessarily gotten better, but they've been different and I've survived. Mm-hmm. And so there's no particular reason for me to think that if something else happens, we can't survive it. Yeah. Couldn't be ready for my mom to die. No. Had to survive it. Yeah. Couldn't be ready for my mom to remarry a guy who was really abusive to us. Had to survive it. You know, I mean, it's just kind of what you just have to acknowledge. Things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I got a, just a couple of last questions for yeah, you. Yeah. And, you know, one of them is I, I hear your story. I hear your heart. And you get back to this healthy place. And I guess I can see or imagine like you feel like you're healthy enough and you want to get back into maybe a pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like you're ready for that and recognize the, the do's and don'ts for Lyle Wood and what's right. going to be healthy to do that. And at least what I'm hearing, that's kind of where your heart is and yeah. eventually one to one to do that. Yeah. 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 So that is my desire. Um, so I tried to, um, I've asked myself that question, like, is this a calling? Like, is this, is ministry something I can get out of? Because I did have uh, not necessarily a bad experience. I just allowed myself to drift away from God in the pursuit of ministry. Like I just substituted. So I got burnt out on doing ministry, mm-hmm. but I didn't necessarily get burnt by the church. I still go to the church I was serving at. I serve as a volunteer now. So it didn't ruin me on church. What it did was it made me very aware of what I bring to the church, what I bring to Christ. Like for me, I bring a lot of brokenness. I bring a lot of baggage 
And that stuff's going to show up no matter what I do. It shows up in my sales job. It shows up when I'm pressure washing. It shows up when I'm doing my other sales job. I mean, it just, it shows up at my house. It shows up in my friendships, all this baggage, it just shows up. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be there. It's just a matter of what I do with it and how much weight I give it. And I think what I've learned now is the balancing act of acknowledging, hey man, when your rhythm of life gets off and you don't have a rule of life to follow through and you don't have Sabbath and you don't have some deep rooted spiritual time with God to be with him, your life is going to get out of balance. It's not it might, could be, burnout happens to other people. It's just the acknowledgement that it's gonna happen. I know that now. So you start safeguarding, you put some guardrails up, you start being really intentional about who you meet with and how you fill your time and energy. Mm -hmm. And then you start putting some, uh, you know, if you're talking about an engine, you put a governor on it, right? You can only go a certain speed by putting this apparatus on the machine. And I think now I have a governor. I'm not gonna try to go 80 or 90 miles per hour anymore. I'll go a reasonable speed and I will give it everything I've got. And my family will be my first ministry. I always fought that, man. We had, we had a guy that I loved that we worked with um, that would say that sometimes. And it just, I don't know why it bothered me so much. I didn't know why it bothered me so much. Well, you had a really broken family I growing up, man. a really man. jacked up family. It yeah. wasn't family. Yeah, it really wasn't. It was, it was proving yourself, mm -hmm. keeping yourself uh, out of trouble and uh, limiting how much uh, interaction you had with the guy who was going to hurt you, right? So for me, I was like, I mean, it's better for me to be married to the church and provide for my family. And that's so jacked up. It is jacked up. I didn't realize that until I got some maturity on me. And now all of a sudden it's like, like, like my wife, she, she'll be my only wife. I may work at five or six or seven different churches. Who knows? I may never work at, at church again. But man, if I squander my time with her, dude. Well, I can see how subconsciously you could even with your history, how you could go to that place because your family was so broken, unhealthy and traumatic that the fact that you're just even in a marriage, you have children and like that alone, you trying to be a good husband, good father, that's a hundred times better than where you came from. So yeah. just even that, yeah. the presence of that is like, what more, what more could you pour into it? Right. Like that's, <laughs> but you would think that would drive me to like, all right, man, protect that with everything you've got. You right? would think, but you would think, but, how, how does that happen? But we believe lies and have fears about <laughs> right, stuff, and right. it's, it's it's hard to think healthy when yeah, yeah, those those things happen. You don't know how to process them, and you don't realize how you're being tricked to think something is healthy, and it really isn't. Yeah, it, that's really life. It's tough, man. Yeah, it is. Well, man, dude, I appreciate you sharing all this oh, stuff. Sure. And yeah. you know, one of my favorite things that we do at the end of the podcast is always just asking our our guest someone listening to this, someone who is, you know, you've gone through so much yeah. and we can go to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> losing a parent to yeah. abuse, to divorce, to, you know, mental health stuff. We can mm -hmm. depression, we can go to all sorts of things, but just on how can someone, if they are seeing someone go through any of the things that you've gone through, and you mentioned a little bit what some of the men did for you, but yeah. What is your advice or just how can somebody simply, hey, I see that person going through something that kind of traumatic, whether it's a mental thing or an actual physical loss, relationship loss, what 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 can they do that is just so helpful to just step in and it's not a major thing, but it can lead to like really helping someone like you get to a healthier place. And Yeah, yeah, that's was, that was a great question. And I think 
for me as a man, I need other men to be active, not passive. You know, so I think one of the things that for, for men, we can kind of lean towards passivity. Like, ah, it'll work itself out. It'll be fine. I don't really need to speak into that. If I speak into that, it's going to cause, you know, me to spend more energy than I want to spend or more time than I want to spend. Going to be inconvenienced. Somebody else will pick up the slack, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if you have someone in your life that you love, even if they're kind of on the fringe, if you can just be present with them when you know they're going through a difficult time, it may cost you a little bit, right? It may cost you six months, it may cost you a year. But in that, it could save a life, I think. And, and I don't say that as a cliche. I, mm -hmm. I genuinely believe if I didn't have a couple of those guys looking at me and saying, hey, man, you're not healthy. I love you. This isn't good. Then, I mean, I could be my dad, mm -hmm. you know, and that's a sad, scary reality. And so, yeah, I mean, that's my advice to anybody listening to this that has somebody in your life that, that you love and care about, that you know of, that could be going through something so hard and difficult. Man, just say, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee and don't let them stiff arm. I think that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. I was really good at sidestepping, mm -hmm. asking a lot of questions and not answering a lot of questions, not being known, just knowing. And some of that was self-preservation. Don't let them do that. Don't let them do that. Just say, hey, I know that's wrong. It's total BS. No, sir. Mm -hmm. Tell me what's going on. I think if you do those things, you don't have to have all the answers. You just need to be present. And that'll that'll take care of 80% of it. Thanks, man. It's yeah. really good advice. And I me. appreciate you being very vulnerable <laughs> about yeah. what you've been through. And you know, I really hope it, it helps other people. Yeah. I think it I think it does. I think it will. And hopefully it was therapeutic a little bit for you to share because I think it's gonna impact other people that have gone through even just a little bit of, of what you've experienced just being willing to share it. And so appreciate you being here. Appreciate your friendship and looking forward to continuing that. So yeah. So next podcast, man, we'll talk about any more of those things, right? <laughs> yeah. The whole list. That could have been a five hour podcast. Plenty you're, of content. you're absolutely right. Yeah. So thank you guys for, for being here, Quinn. Thanks for producing. Thank you city church for hosting. Thank you. Lyle Wood for being our guest and, uh, it's been neglected and we'll catch you next time. Peace. See you.